Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with atmospheric scientist Catherine Hayhoe. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you get your podcasts. It is recording, yes. Okay, and I just got my tea ready, so I think we're ready to go. Oh, I have my tea, too. Okay, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, um, you know, a way that I often start my conversations is is with the curiosity I have about the religious and spiritual background of a childhood, Um, however that's defined, whether that was about presence or absence, and, and how that flows into the questions and passions people follow all their lives. Um, and it's so interesting to, um, to, to get to know you and hear that you were, you grew up in the Plymouth Brethren tradition of parents who were missionaries. Um, so the fact that you had a religious background is very clear and defined in some ways. You know, the, 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 um, the variation on that question I think I'd like to ask you is, um, what was the relationship that you, uh, kind of that, that, that transmitted to you the relationship between science and religion um, in the background of your childhood? Well, that was exactly what the background of my childhood was, because my dad was a science teacher, and my grandma, his mother, actually had a degree in science education, although she used it to raise her eight children. And so I grew up with the idea that science was the most fascinating thing you could possibly find out more about, because who would not want to know how the world worked? Every summer, we would have projects, um, learning the bird calls that we would hear in the forest around us in southern Ontario, or native flowers, or one of my first memories, actually, I think I was probably maybe three or four years old, is going to the park with my dad late at night. I mean, it felt like two in the morning, but it was probably like 10 o'clock at night (laughs) for a small child. (laughs) And him teaching me how to find the Andromeda galaxy using Mm -hmm. binoculars. The idea that we can actually look at a different galaxy outside our own galaxy just using binoculars. Our, our family had a big station wagon, and it wasn't just because we had three kids in the family. It was because the telescope went with us yeah, on okay. all our family vacations. Right. And in fact, our vacations were planned around astronomical events, mm-hmm. like wow. going to see Halley's Comet or an eclipse of the sun or the moon. Mm-hmm. So, so I grew up with this background running through my whole childhood of science. And in fact, I was just looking back at some old pictures of my seventh birthday party, and there's a telescope sitting right behind me as I'm sitting there with my birthday hat on surrounded by all my friends and cake. All right. <laughs> yes. And and it w- it was very intimately linked with what we believed because uh, my father was also um, a teacher in our local church. Uh, my family are all Christian. And, and when I say my family, I don't mean my immediate family. I mean all of our extended family as well. And so I grew up very much with the idea that the Bible is God's written word and the universe is God's expressed word. And Mm -hmm. by studying one or the other equally, we are studying God's work. So that was very much the background running through my life. And it wasn't until I got much older that I realized how unusual that type of perspective really is. Yeah. 
Yeah, for it to be so overt, um, so overtly expressed, right? And sounds like celebrated, enjoyed, delighted in. Um, you are an atmospheric scientist, and and that's what you've no, you're known for. But it was also interesting for me to learn, although just for the story you just told me, this is not so surprising. Again, that you originally studied astronomy and astrophysics. Yes, you can't be surprised now that you no, know. No, I can't. <laughs> that with that with that telescope and the always traveling in your car, it kind of it absolutely makes sense now. Yes, and and the thing is, is when you study the universe, there's always something new to discover. That is what is so appealing about astronomy and astrophysics is there's always something new because we're creating more powerful telescopes and different ways of observing the universe. And so there's always something that we can discover that no one ever has before. And if if you love science, there's nothing more compelling than the idea of making a discovery. Right. <laughs> but but yes, yeah, so I was I, my undergraduate degree is actually in astronomy and physics, and I was planning to pursue that as a career when I needed an extra class to fulfill my breadth requirements. And I looked around, and there was a brand new class on climate change over mm-hmm. in the geography department. What, so, what year was this? Um, this was back in 1993. It would have been okay. So, a brand new class in climate change. What do you say? Yes. Climate science. Was it climate change or climate climate um, science? It was really climate science. Yeah. The person okay. who was teaching it was very focused on climate science and yeah. climate modeling. So, so yeah. So this was like the first class at the University of Toronto, and, and University of Toronto is a very large school. I mean, I don't know how many students it had then, but you know, somewhere around sixty-five thousand. And so it was a very large school, and this was the first class on yeah. climate change. Yeah. There were there were some classes on sustainability and things like that, but not specifically on climate. So I thought to myself, well, this is an interesting, interesting looking class. Why don't I take it? And I had learned about climate change as a student, um, you know, learning about deforestation and biodiversity loss and air pollution and climate change and other issues that were environmental issues that environmentalists worked on and looked after and tried to fix. And then the rest of us Mm. wished them well. That's sort of the way I thought of environmental issues. And this class completely shocked me because, first of all, I found out that climate change is no longer a distant issue. It's already here and now. And that was back in the 1990s. The urgency is imminent. And then the second thing I learned, and this is what completely changed my life, was that climate change, it's not only an environmental issue. It is also quite literally a health issue. It directly affects our health. It affects our food and our water. It affects the economy and national security. But most of all, it disproportionately affects the poorest and most marginalized people in the world, the very people who I believe that we as Christians are told to love and care for. So it was my faith, it was my heart rather than my head that said, you know, let me do everything I can to help solve this urgent problem that is harming, uh, you know, what the Bible refers to as the least of these and harming all of us, too, wherever we live. And surely it's so urgent, we'll fix it soon, and then I can go back to studying galaxies. Right. <laughs> and? But then you got into it and never looked back? Well, we haven't fixed it yet. We haven't fixed it yet. That's true. No. And, and in fact, now, I've been doing this now for, oh my goodness, so 25 years, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like that long, which is probably a good thing. And someone asked me just the other day, you know, what would you do if, you know, there's just this miraculous solution to climate change that all of a sudden just appeared and fixed the problem? Would you keep on studying this planet? And I said, no, at this point, I think I would actually just open a yarn store. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> and I believe you. I actually believe you that you mean that. Um, I'm a very serious knitter. Yeah, okay. Uh, and you'd probably look at stars in the evening. Oh, yes. And there's fun. these great patterns that you can sort of knit, like these right. astronaut, these star patterns. And, <laughs> yes. Don't even get me started on that. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, you are really renowned um, in the non-scientific world, I would say, as really kind of an ambassador, um, a I would say a bridge person um, between these these the, the between some realm the religious world and the world of scientific uh, discovery and fact and knowledge. But but what I'd really like to set out before we get into that is is really establish um, and really kind of get nerdy on the the authority you hold as a scientist and um you know your uh and your and your focus there what your contribution has been to this science um i mean i wouldn't know where to start you there are just um you know pages and pages of the contributions you've made the peer reviewed papers um you've written the key reports that you contribute to um, for national and uh, global organizations. Um, you're now the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. Um, but you made your name in a, a, as a scientist, a, as an atmospheric scientist, in something called statistical downscaling. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> which was a new field when you started graduate school in 1995. So just... Just let us into what that is and how it has affected what we know, not just in science, but what we know in science is also what we're learning as a species, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, because really, climate change is about us. Mm -hmm. um, the bottom line that I discovered was that it is not only an environmental issue and a health issue and a justice issue and an equity issue, it's a human issue. Yeah. So it really is about us. Yeah. So when I decided to uh, study atmospheric science, because um, many people might be surprised to learn that there are very few, if any, programs that you can actually study that are called climate change or climate science. Mm -hmm. So you sort of have to pick an aspect of the climate system to study. And I picked atmospheric science because it was most closely related to what I had already been learning. In fact, some of my planetary science classes were about the atmospheres of the Earth and other planets. So, hmm. so I wanted to do research that was very relevant to the real world. I did not want to be sort of in the ivory tower doing esoteric studies. I could do that just as well in, in astronomy or physics. I wanted to be studying something that could be used to make real world decisions here and now to help people avoid the impacts of climate change by reducing our emissions as soon as possible and help people prepare for the impacts that we can no longer avoid. So my initial work looked at the contribution of other heat-trapping gases in addition to carbon dioxide and how we could reduce their emissions quite quickly and really help ourselves get off to a good start. So about 65% of the uh, heat-trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around this planet are actually carbon dioxide. And then the remainder, about 35%, are other gases, what we call okay. non-CO2 greenhouse gases like methane. And nitrous oxide. So I was actually studying how we could quite quickly reduce our emissions of methane, for example, to help cut down on the warming short term while we were working on carbon long term. And I was, I was working on that when I got asked to participate in an assessment of climate change impacts for the Great Lakes region, which, of course, is where I'm from. I'm from Toronto. And so, I'm speaking to you from Minnesota. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So <laughs> on either side of the Great Lakes, there yes. we are. Yes. And as you know, as, as someone who lives in that area. Those you lakes know, that think they're oceans. 
Yes, they do. And they look yes. like oceans too. Yeah. And, and we love them. Like yes. you cannot live there without just absolutely loving where yeah. you live. Yeah. Um, and my heart is still very much in the Great Lakes. In fact, I'm not a U.S. citizen. I'm still a Canadian citizen in part because that's just really who I am and where I still call home. <laughs> right. Um, so I was working with a lot of ecologists, um, trying to look at how climate change was affecting um, ecological systems on land and in the Great Lakes themselves. And I was one of only two climate scientists on the team. And I was very surprised to learn that these ecologists, who of course are trying to protect all of these just endangered species and systems in the area we love so much, they were working with climate information that was, you know, 10 or 20 years out of date. It was the equivalent of trying to drive a Model T four down 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 a racetrack when everybody else has got like Formula One race cars. Right. And so, as you know, as a climate scientist, I sort of took personal responsibility for this. I said, "This is not acceptable. They need to be using much more up to date information." And they said to me, "Well, where do we get that information from?" And I said, "I don't know. I'm going to figure that out." Right. So I started digging into it, and it turned out that we get our future information on what is going to be happening in terms of how our temperature and our rainfall patterns are going to be changing and what's going to be happening to lake levels and hurricanes and droughts and things like that. We get those from really big physics-based climate models that are run on some of the most powerful supercomputers in the world. Gosh. But, but... The output of those models is still quite coarse. And back in those days, it was very coarse in terms of its spatial resolution, its temporal resolution. You would just have, you know, six grid cells covering the whole Great Lakes area. And, you know, as someone who lives in Minnesota, you know that the part of Minnesota that's right on the Great Lakes is very different than the part of Minnesota on the other side of the state, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's its own world. Exactly. It's microclimates. Yeah. So... And, and the same, obviously, for Michigan and Ontario and more. So that's when I started to dig around to look at, for ways to try to get higher resolution information that people could use to make these, these decisions about, you know, managing mm-hmm. endangered or native ecosystems or other areas. And so I started to get into that. And I said to the people who were doing the study, the Ecological Society of America and the Union of Concerned Scientists, I said, you know, really the way to do this is to start with high resolution climate projections. And then you give those projections to all the different people who are studying impacts, and you get them to all use the same projections. So they're singing off the same score, so to speak, when they look at how that's going to affect, you know, wild rice or lake levels, or, you know, the progression of uh, Lyme disease. (laughs) through Minnesota or something like that. So they took me up on it and they said, all right, we're going to do that in California. You're on the hook. Right. (laughs) So that was where I had to sort of sit down and figure out who was doing this work, what already existed, what could we look for that that could, could add to that. And we were focusing on the state of California. So we actually figured out how to combine observations with global climate model output. Because observations are a lot higher resolution, either from weather stations or from high resolution grids. Combine observations with climate model output to get projections that are highly localized, like for individual weather stations, like for the Sacramento airport, for example, or for, you know, a fine grid covering the Central Valley. So you can see the difference between the north and south parts of the east or west of the Central Valley. And that's the downscaling is the... Is the is is this again this language of statistical downscaling? Is that the application of this high level science to very local events mm-hmm. and conditions? Exactly. Okay. It's downscaling and it's translating because. Right. 
we get the, our raw output is daily maximum and minimum temperature and precipitation and humidity. But often what people are really interested in is how many days are going to be over 100 degrees. Right. Right. Or how many days in Minneapolis will be below freezing or when droughts come, how long and how strong will those droughts be? So that's where I started what I still do today, which is developing super high resolution information for local scales. Like, you know, here for the city of Houston, here's what's going to be happening to your extreme heat days, to your drought risk, to your heavy rain risk, because, of course, they are very worried about flooding. And here's the important part. Here is the difference between what your city will look like in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, here's the difference between what your city will look like depending on the choices we make today. Our choices are the biggest source of uncertainty in the future. And when people bring that down to the local scale, and instead of looking at polar bears in Antarctica, we're looking at, okay, the city of Chicago could be having three you know, of the worst heat waves that they've ever had in the past, three of those every year if we don't do anything about climate change. Mm -hmm. But if we do something about climate change, they would still be seeing bad heat waves, but might be more like one or two a decade. When you put it in such stark terms, then all of a sudden everybody in Chicago is like, oh, so that's why climate action matters. Well, and, you know, this is just just bringing into relief for me, you know, and this this flows very directly from what you said was your 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 kind of moral motivation for for going into this seeing that what we what we speak about in terms of climate change is um amplifying just the most serious humanitarian crises we have um mm-hmm. and so when i think about like you're not ultimately you're not working this is kind of vague language on the problem of climate change you're working on problems that are caused by it but like when i've when i've read into what you're doing you know even more gran- in, in even more granular examples like you're working on you know where there's going to be sewer overflow or warped train rails and when you look at places and you've looked at places like chicago and california and the us northeast and mm-hmm. looked at what this thing we speak about uh, you know, it almost has an abstract, I think the phrase almost is, is abstract to people, which is, I think, what you're out there bumping up against. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about the future of water supply and agriculture and tourism and, and human well-being. That's exactly what it is. It's uh, literally about us. And so that's why my new book is called Saving Us. Right. <laughs> because it's not about saving the planet. It yeah. is literally about us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's I my very next question that I've got written down here it flows so beautiful because I so it, here's um, I am very there's this thought experiment I play a lot I have played it before I play it more in these years of what will human beings what will our ancestors or our descendants um, will be the ancestors see of us uh, looking at us a hundred years from now and um, I. I, I, some, I sometimes think that, you know, all of the things that we would note as milestones and headlines, you know, they, they could all be wiped away by this very thing that you work on, right? By, by mm-hmm. what, what is happening ecologically. Um, and you write a lot, uh, and this is in sync with my, my, my fascination with this, about how, you know, if we think about the 1960s, right, how would we all tell the stories of the 1960s, the social movements, the laws that were passed, the music that was made? Um, 
but it was also in 1965, and you you've tell this story a lot, and I, I haven't mm-hmm. seen many people telling this story, that a, a, an American president, um, actually from Texas, where you are, yes. um, first got a 300-page report that warned about the dangers of air pollution, which is how we talked about it then. I was around. You weren't. Um, and it said, uh, through... Uh, his worldwide industrial civilization, man is unwittingly conducting a vast geophysical experiment and basically concluded that this could uh, raise carbon in the atmosphere, raise Earth's temperature, melt the Antarctic ice cap, lead to increased ocean acidity, and be deleterious to humans. Hmm. And as you know, um, in my book, I literally refer to climate change as an unprecedented experiment with the only home that we have. So mm-hmm. here we are decades later as scientists sounding the alarm yet again, because again, we know it's not about the planet. It's about us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm intrigued um, that you use the language of climate change. I think language, vocabulary around this is important and loaded. Um, you are an evangelical Christian. Um, I, I also have an experience that, and it's not just in that world, that in, in, in some, you know, that, there, that it has been important to be able to translate uh, that phrase into language that is meaningful for people. But is there a reason that you, I feel like you really insist on that. I've been, I spent a lot of time in the last couple of days looking at you out there speaking and writing. I insist, sorry, on what? On calling it on climate change? On climate change, on using the language of climate change. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about that. I would say, so, so for example, uh, I have a YouTube series that answers frequently asked questions that people have about climate change that I did in partnership with our local PBS station. Yeah. And I called that global weirding. Because that's what people see where they are. We don't see an increase in the global average temperature of the planet. We see that wherever we live, things are just getting weird. And increasingly, it's hard to find anybody who isn't willing to agree with that. They might not agree that climate is changing, but they will agree things are getting weird. Um, And then in the book, I also talk about how I decided to conduct a little experiment one time and give a presentation to an audience of a few hundred water managers who I knew would be sort of a little, you know, not too sure about this whole climate change thing. I decided to give a talk, which was all about observed trends and future projections and what was happening to drought and rainfall and what would be happening in the future, like literally showing climate observations and climate model results. But I decided to never say the two words, climate and change, in sequence. I would talk. I could talk about climate trends or climate variability, but I decided never to say those two in, in, in a row. And so mm-hmm. afterwards, I ne- I'll never forget, there, uh, this woman came running up to me. And she grabbed my hand and she pumped my hand. She's like, that was a great talk. I agree with everything you said. It just makes sense. Yeah. And then she said, those people who talk about global warming, I don't agree with them at all. <laughs> and, right. and at that, right. my mind sort of boggled a little bit yeah. because that was literally what I was talking about. But yeah. because I had not said those words, yeah. she had been able to listen to what I was actually saying without tripping over the, the language. And she said, but this, this makes sense. And so that taught me that, first of all, that words are very important, like you say. Um, and as a scientist, I do say climate change because that is what it is. You have to, you have to use the, the correct term, the yeah. you know, call the spade a spade. But 
If we're talking with people one-on-one, if we're building connections with people who might be uncomfortable with those words, we can often have a much more productive conversation if we use the language that we're familiar and comfortable with and we can talk about the same things without necessarily mentioning a few words that people might trip over um, or that might cause them to turn off. Yeah. So, you know, I want to say something to you before we go on, which is that I just want you to know we are going to flag the book all the way through the interview. Oh, okay. Um, so, and I, <laughs> Thank you. And I'm I saying that, that because we, because I know <laughs> that, that, that you, publicists will tell you that you have to mention it a lot, but don't worry about it. And, okay. and we actually, we actually don't do book interviews. So I'm going to interview you for the sweep of your work, but I am going to absolutely, we will center it around telling people that that book is out there. So I just, oh, okay, I okay. Thank you so much. You relieved my mind. I, yeah, no. I, was, I was mentally thinking that my publicist was like, Catherine. No, I know, I know, I know. I know. And so, good. No, so oh, let's just talk so and right. then we'll do that. We'll do that You read part. my mind completely. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, because but, but, I, my, I, th- I feel like my job is, yes, to get people to know that your book is out there and also to get to know you, Um Right. Mm-hmm. And so that all those things work together. Um, so yes. good. OK. And, and I haven't I haven't honest, I honestly like those stories. I haven't been shoehorning them in They're They're the natural. Oh, no, stories no, I know. I, I know. At that time. Yeah. Yes. No, there's, <laughs> okay. they're your stories. No, I get that. Um, I. Um, yeah. So. So. So I. You know, this there's I feel like there's there's also a story that I feel is not very told very well or fulsomely or alive in our culture, which you're also very much a part of, which is this religious, um, I don't even want to say reckoning, kind of encounter, mm-hmm. relationship, dialogue <laughs> with um, with this matter of our ecological present and future. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's a complicated picture, right? It's not it's not just one thing. I mean, the thing that gets all the publicity and I know that you're often in the middle of is kind of um is where there's where it feels like there's a there's a struggle with science or a hostility to this science. Um but and you've you write about this and 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 speak about this um when you're in the world. I mean, you know, there 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 is this world that has emerged in recent decades of you know, from the National Association of Evangelicals to the World Evangelical Alliance, there was an Islamic declaration on climate change. Pope Francis, who you've written mm-hmm. about, you know, is famously uh, passionate about the natural world, the patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, Barth- Bartholomew is known as the Green Patriarch. The World Wildlife Fund has a sacred earth program. Um, and I just, you know, I, I feel like just almost like that 1965 report this is part of the story of our time that we don't tell. And I, I mean, I want to talk to you about the exchanges you're in and how you've really put yourself on the fault line. But the fault line isn't the whole story. Mm, I think you're totally right. And I'm so <laughs> glad that you're bringing this up. And of course, yeah. this is the perfect place to do it. If we don't talk about this here, where do we? Yeah. So in the United States, white evangelical Protestants and white Catholics, those two groups are consistently the least concerned about climate change. And so because of that, people often mistakenly assume that it's something about, um, you know, what the Bible says or uh, what we believe as Christians or where we go to church on Sunday or don't go to church on Sunday that is dictating our opinions. 
But when social scientists dig into it, they find that it turns out it's all political ideology and the history of the increasing association and the deliberate association between right-wing politics and theologically conservative Christianity that began with the whole issue of desegregation of schools and then the moral majority, that climate change has fallen right into that hit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's and civil it theology. If, it's not, it's not <laughs> religious. It's not Christian theology. Right, right. It is yeah. theology, just not Christian. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's very unchristian, in fact, because if you truly look at the Bible and, you know, thoughtful leaders from John Calvin all the way up to the present day and Martin Luther, from John Calvin and Martin Luther all the way up to the present day, thoughtful, thoughtful, um, theological leaders have looked at the Bible and have clearly concluded that care or stewardship over every living thing on this earth, as it says in Genesis 1, chapter 1, which living things include plants and animals, but they also include humans too. That is a specific part of our responsibility as humans. It doesn't say that God gave Christians responsibility. It says God gave humans responsibility over every living thing on this earth. And then the idea of caring for and loving our neighbors and being being recognized, being known by our love for others. The idea that the fruit of the Spirit, as we Christians believe, is love and joy and patience and kindness, um, rather than um, greed and hubris and arrogance and judgment, which unfortunately is what is so often associated with religion these days. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really about returning, I think, to who we are. And I mean, if we really mm. were, if we acted like who we believed we were— who as Christians, at least the Bible told us we were. And of course, in other major world religions, there's also strong aspects of stewardship and care for creation and loving others and caring for the less fortunate. But if we really lived out who we were, the world would be a completely different place. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting way in which you personally entered this story. Um, not, not, Not the hostility, but the the estrangement, which actually isn't there in the in the history of science or of religion. Um, I mean, you, you, your husband, who's now um, a pastor, um, was a linguistic scholar. Is that right? When you first got mm-hmm. to know him, like yeah. six months. After, this is what I read. Tell me if this is true. <laughs> Discovered to her shock, <laughs> six months after her marriage, um, that he was among the dubious. Yes, that is true. <laughs> and, and you may you may say, how could that possibly be true? Right. Did well, that say- is. Had you really not talked about this before? <laughs> well, for, first of all, I'd just like to be clear: internet dating was not even a thing back then, so it was all in person. <laughs> it wasn't one of those things where you you know okay. meet somebody online and then. <laughs> No. And you hadn't read everything he'd written online about his thoughts on science. <laughs> no, because social media wasn't a thing in those yeah. days either. Yeah. Well, so so here's how it came about. So I, growing up in Canada, um, w- had never met anyone who didn't think climate change was real. Mm. And so it never occurred to me to ask because you don't stop to ask people a list of like, do you believe in gravity? <laughs> is the sky blue? You know, is climate change real? You, you just don't ask these things. You just assume everybody agrees, right? Yeah. So that was my cultural assumption. And then he coming from, you know, growing up in um, in the cultural South, growing up in a politically conservative family, he had never met anyone who shared his faith, who believed that it was real. 
And I shouldn't use the word believe because I don't believe. I've looked at the evidence and it is. And so right. he never thought to ask because he had never met anybody who did. And so um, you guys said, well, you know, but what were you studying? Yeah, I was in graduate school studying and so was he. But, you know, I was studying like the, the chemical reactions that remove methane from the atmosphere. Uh, okay. So. All right. That's when you were doing the downscaling, which is just like a foreign language to the rest of us. Exactly. And uh-huh. so he certainly knew that I was studying, you know, chemical modeling in the atmosphere. But we never just sat down and had that conversation because we just mm. ha- both had these huge assumptions mm. um, about what all normal, educated people believe and then <laughs> what everybody else does. And much to our shock, we were both in the other camp. It's fascinating. Um, and so, no, I think there's some. There's a couple of interesting. One thing that's interesting about that story, um, again, and I'm, you know, we're trying to wrap our. I want us to wrap our conversational arms around this dynamic in our culture, which is so distressing to so many, and 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 just, um, and I mean the fight, right? And then the and then the mistrust that 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 makes the makes that even worse. Um, the on on both sides, the ferocity that ends up being on both sides, but it's not really two sides, right? Like there's somebody like your husband in there, who's not hostile, but. Um, just had never considered the equations yeah. that to you felt so obvious. Yeah. And and then there is this world of of fierceness, of resistance, um of you know, of of ugliness sometimes and 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 there's also fierceness and ugliness that comes back at it. Um mm-hmm. how do you how do you make sense of that? How do you I mean on in human terms? Well, We live today in a country in the United States that is more politically polarized than it's been in either of our lifetimes ever. And that just seems to be getting worse by the day. And because of this polarization, the loudest voices are at the extremes of both sides of the spectrum. The loudest, most hostile, most angry, most virulent voices are at the far right and the far left. Each of us, depending on where we fall on the spectrum, we tend to think, well, we stayed the, in the same place and everybody else moved. <laughs> but yeah. when you look at what's happening, it's happening on both sides. And because of that, when you take highly politically polarized issues and climate change has been the number one most polarized issue in the whole country in the U.S. for over a decade now. Hmm. Sadly, coronavirus is now right up there with it. Um, but hmm. Well, are... and it's, it has that science um, element, right? There's it's. There's some kinship there in terms of it has the science skepticism connected. Oh, yes. I, yeah. I, there, I've given whole talks on the parallels between, between COVID yeah. and, and climate change in terms of how scientists have been warning about it for a long time, mm-hmm. how the science on what causes it and what we can do to prevent it is crystal clear, yet how it's highly politically polarized. And the number one predictor of whether you agree that climate is changing and humans are responsible and masks prevent the spread of COVID and everyone should get a vaccine is simply where you fall on the political spectrum. Those two go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So here we are in this highly polarized environment. And whenever you publicly say anything that the other far end of the spectrum would disagree with, you immediately get attacked. And I sort of have a sense that I'm almost in the right place because I actually get attacks from both sides. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and it's kind of ironic. Most, most people would be surprised to hear that, but I do. I get, I get, I get more attacks from the right, right-hand side than the left, but I definitely get quite, quite a noticeable share from the left because to them, I'm not saying enough or I'm not attacking people enough or I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, I'm trying to be that voice in the middle. And when you are that voice in the middle, as, as, as quite a few people are really trying to be on issues like COVID and vaccines and, um, science and, and religion and climate change. And I think of, you know, people like Francis Collins, who heads the National Institutes of Health, yeah. who is also a Christian. I think of BioLogos, the organization that he helped found that really tries to help Christians understand and reconcile science with their faith. Yeah. Um, I think of organizations like uh, Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, who, who are advocating for clean energy and climate solutions across the country. When you're trying to be that voice in the middle, no one's happy because all people want is to feel comfortable with their tribe, with their assumptions and their identity and their ideology unchallenged. And from a human condition perspective or, you know, um, insight into the human condition, either scientific or theological, when human beings are um, retreating into that, there's always a lot of fear in mm. the equation that's mm. that's coming out looking like looking fierce. I well, know, I mean, yeah, go yeah. On. Oh, yes. I mean, fear is the number one emotion today in public discourse, in my opinion. And fear is a primary emotion. So often fear is overlaid by anger or frustration or attempts to control other people or judgment. Mm-hmm. But those mm-hmm. are all sort of secondary emotions, so to speak. And what is underneath all of those extremely negative emotions is fear. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's so important to hear you say that because I know that you are spending time um, in congregations with people um, who who are resistant of the science that you work in, um, of the notion of climate change. Um, and I think it's, it, I, I don't know, I, I uh, you know, ha, ha, the, and I think somebody on the, you know, somebody might listen and say uh, that it's that it would feel completely absurd that there's fear at stake because what they should be afraid of, <laughs> right? What they should be afraid of is not acting on this. Mm-hmm. But you're just, I just, I'm, I don't want to know, like, you're holding a different space. So just keep going on what that space is. <laughs> well, well, yes. I mean, when we talk about climate change and when we talk about our future, and the two, of course, are completely linked because the only chance we have of having a future is by fixing climate change. If we don't mm-hmm. fix climate change, it's not about, again, it's not about saving the planet. It's about saving us. Yeah. When we talk about the future, the dominant emotion is fear. And we see that expressed in two primary ways. The first way is more obvious and more overt. overt. It's the fear of what will happen to us if we don't fix climate change, the apocalyptic scenarios, the headline after headline of starving polar bears and ice sheets falling into the ocean and sea level rising and uh, droughts uh, devastating some of the poorest parts in Africa and supercharged hurricanes coming ashore one after the other after the Mm -hmm. other. And, And don't get me wrong, these headlines are valid. That is what the science says. But when we are overloaded with fear and we don't feel like there's anything we can do about it, we just check out. 
Yeah. So I talk to people all the time. I've had thousands of conversations with people. I talked to probably about 10 different people just yesterday about this. And every (laughs) single person, and these are all people in Texas, every single person said that they were worried about climate change, but they didn't know what to do. So they didn't talk about it. Right. So that's one side. And that that side is growing, growing bigger and bigger. There's, there's this really helpful sort of paradigm called the Six Americas of Global Warming, created by Tony mm-hmm. Lazarowitz and Ed Maybach. Mm. And it shows how people are not just for or against or, you know, believers or deniers, as we commonly, you know, in common parlance, but rather people fall into one of six groups. And the first two groups, the alarmed and the concerned, are the biggest groups, and they make up more than 50% of people in the United States. Right. I've I've read, you know, you you in your book and in your writing you bring in these other kinds of ways these questions get asked that reveal that there in fact is this expansive middle where where mm-hmm. where there's more agreement than not we which we never start there. So that's nope. completely fascinating what you just said. Yes. Yeah. Um, you're, you're so right. It's like the silent middle and then the loud mm-hmm. tails. And so yeah. you have the tails wagging the dogs, barking yeah. at each other. And then you have the entire rest of the dog's body. <laughs> it's just not saying anything. Right. Or then you also, <laughs> and you quoted this, you cited this other study. This is, I think, the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication that mm-hmm. more than eight. So, so, okay, whatever people say, yes or no, I believe in climate change or whatever. But then more than 80% of people in the U.S. will agree that it makes sense to invest in renewable energy. So yeah, you yeah. ask a different question and you and the picture starts to um, get nuanced. Totally. Yeah. And so, so, so you have those people who their fear is what's going to happen if we don't do something about it. And then mm-hmm. the next biggest group is actually cautious. So cautious people are slightly concerned. They're not quite sure. They have some questions, but they're still on that side. Okay. Well, then you have the other half of the spectrum, which is led by the 7% who are dismissive. They're the people who call climate change a hoax. They're only 7%. 7%. Only. Now, mm-hmm. they're very loud, and they get a lot of attention in the media, and they include yeah. a lot of politicians. But they're only 7%. And then there's 12% who are doubtful, sort of, I'd probably put my husband in that category when we first met. Um, they have some very serious questions, but they're at least willing to engage. It's not a dismissive person. I, I honestly picture them as if they have their fingers in their ears because they literally cannot listen to the words coming out of your mouth if they think that they pose a threat to their identity. And so that's where the fear comes in. Well, there's right. There's that fear again. Totally. Yeah. So so the other half of the fear, and, and people have this fear too across the spectrum, is the fear and it's because this fear is deliberately stoked. You can read this fear online. You can you will be told this fear by people in the media and people whose whose opinions you trust. The fear that the only way to fix climate change is to destroy our comfortable lifestyle and everything we hold dear. I was talking with a pastor just recently and and, and he he asked me very genuinely. He said, "How do I talk to people about climate change when the only solutions that we are told that there are to climate change is to stop eating meat, which is a very big deal in Texas with those barbecues. Yeah. <laughs> it really yeah. is. Yeah. It's it's an identity issue. Like I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. saying this facetiously. It is literally an identity issue. And stop driving trucks, also an identity issue. Stop mm-hmm. um, traveling, stop having children, which is also an identity issue." <laughs> Basically, stop all these things that actually we often see as defining who we are. And he said, how am I supposed to tell people that we're supposed to do this when it's as if I'm telling them, you know, we have to just, um, and I think these were my words, you know, return to the Stone Age, like unplug everything and all the solutions are bad. And it's true. And so this is deliberately cultivated. I mean, I have even heard, and I tell the story in the book about how some people are literally spreading the idea that the only solution to climate change is abortion. 
Just abort all the babies, mm. problem solved. Wow. Um, and, you know, as a mother, obviously, I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm not on board with that because I want my son. Yeah. So, so um, that that's that's the other half of the fear, the fear of change, the fear that um, and because of some of the voices on the far end, and there are voices telling us that we have to stop doing everything. There are voices saying that. And then there are other voices amplifying that deliberately trying to get people to not want to do that. And so that's the other fear is that somehow we would lose everything we hold dear. And sadly, the way our human psychology is built, psychologists have shown that we as humans are much more averse to losing what we have than gaining something new. And so I think there's some very smart people who have put those pieces together and deliberately communicated a message to us that we're going to lose all we hold dear instead of messaging the truth, which is, don't you want to be more energy independent rather than less? Don't you want to have a car that is faster, that you never have to go to the gas station again, especially in days of COVID, than the one that you have today? And that doesn't produce air pollution that's responsible for almost 9 million deaths a year. Don't you want to grow food in a way that is healthy and good for the soil and for people and for the animals too? Don't you want to invest in nature so it can protect us by purifying our air and our water and protecting our coastlines and Mm. providing habitat for animals and preventing zoonosis? When we actually start talking about real solutions, and that's the Yale survey that you referred to that I talk about in the book, when we ask people about real solutions, everybody's on board. Everybody says, heck yes, I would love to do that. And so that is where we can directly address the fear head on. Yeah. And and you... Um it's interesting. You you're you're walking such a fascinating line. Of you know, f- again, for you um, as a scientist and as a Christian, those two things are not in opposition. Science is not a problem um, uh, for faith or for anything. But you're also really clear that that merely imparting scientific fact or facts that flow from scientific observation is not what is ultimately going to get people to care about climate change who don't mm-hmm. already care. Yes. And so how do you, I mean, it's a phrase you use in your TED Talk, uh, you know, what we need, fear is not going to motivate us for the long term, what you've been saying, what we need to fix this thing is rational hope. How do you instill rational hope? I mean, and, I'm, and I mean, how do you do that, right, when you're out there? <laughs> yes. Well, I, being a scientist, mm-hmm. I track the questions people ask me. And I started to do this quite a while ago because when I first started to talk to people about climate change, which happened when I moved here to Texas, and we moved here because the university wanted my husband, not me. I was the plus one who <laughs> was along for the ride. Right. And, um, and he also was invited to pastor a local church about the same time. So he really felt called to move to Texas. And I was sort of dragging my heels thinking, you know, as a Canadian, this is not a life I ever envisioned for myself. <laughs> and of course, it turned out in retrospect to be the best possible thing that could ever have happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when I got to Texas, I started to get invited for the first time to speak to groups that where I was not preaching to the choir. I was invited to speak to women's groups and, you know, senior citizen homes and then moving on Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, Mm -hmm. local churches and about, you know, questions they had about climate change. They were curious. So the first time I did, I still remember, I, I knew by then, you know, my husband and I had already talked all this through. So I knew by then sort of what questions people might have. So I did my best to marshal all the scientific facts. <laughs> and I did my best. I made my best possible PowerPoint. And I went <laughs> right. and I tried to explain it as clearly as I could. And it went okay. It didn't go horribly bad. But 
The questions people asked, they asked a lot of questions that clearly were things that I hadn't talked about. So I listened to their questions very carefully. And then the next time I was giving a presentation, because there was a woman there who said, oh, maybe you could come talk to our book club in a few weeks. So I said, sure. I changed my presentation and made sure I answered those questions. And I kept on answering. I kept on updating what I was talking about to answer the questions people had. So I still do that to this day, although now I have probably about 20 or 25 different types of presentations I give. And I I listen carefully to the questions I get because I feel like that's what people want to know that I'm not telling them. And starting about four years ago or so, I started to see one question rising to the top because I actually even use an app where people can upvote what question they most care about now. Uh I started to see this one question rising to the top, whoever I was talking to. It didn't matter if it was fellow academics, if it was students, if it was business people, if it was a church group. Everybody wanted to know what gives you hope. (sighs) Wow. So so I had to figure out the answer to that. (laughs) So I thought, well, a climate scientist is a good person to ask. Because if there's anyone who could and should be hopeless, it's us. I mean, we see, we're sort of like the physicians of the planet, and we see exactly how far the disease has spread. Yeah. We see every new study that comes out um, showing that it's, you know, climate change is worse than we thought or spreading faster than we thought or impacting us in new ways that we didn't even imagine. So I had to ask myself, well, where do I find hope? And first of all, I do find hope in the science because the science, including the brand new IPCC report that just came out this year, the science is very clear that our future is still in our hands. The conclusion, the ending has not been written. Hmm. Our choices make more of a difference today than they ever have. In fact, one of my co-authors on All We Can Save, which is a wonderful compendium of, of uh, women's voices on climate change, Catherine Wilkinson, she's, she says, what, what a magnificent time to be alive because yeah. we truly yeah. can make such that, a difference. That, that what we do matters so much. What these, what, this, so the story that hasn't been written is what our, what our uh, descendants will see 110 years from now, 120 that, years yeah. from now. That's it. Well, I I think it might be even sooner than that. But yeah, that's exactly what what, what is so amazing. So so that was the first thing. And then the second thing is recognizing that that we are already moving towards a better future. Now, it might not seem like that because all the headlines are full of doom and gloom and bad news. But when we start to look for hopeful news, and sadly, we have to go out and look for it. Because if you just go, I did an experiment the other day where I went to the website of a major news organization, and I just paged down through 35 headlines. And about seven or eight were very neutral. Like they didn't invoke any emotion to me. They're just neutral, factual headlines. And every single other headline was negative. Every one. So, so when we go out and we look, though, for the hopeful stories of people who are making a difference, that imbues us with a sense of efficacy that, wow, there's somebody over there who's doing be. something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even as I was thinking about getting ready to interview you mm-hmm. in Texas, right? I mean, you are in Texas. And te- yes. <laughs> Texas, Texas figures large um, in this story, well, Texas always figures large, right? I grew up in Oklahoma. Texas, just everything's bigger in Texas, they say. Yes. Um, and it, it's so interesting, even there, I mean, I, I, this is, oh, I think this was actually an article about you, maybe in the Texas Monthly. Yeah, um, but using you, interviewing you, and also reflecting on how, I mean, if that Texas is the number, if, if Texas were its own country, it would be the seventh most prolific emitter of carbon dioxide in the world. It's the number one emitter in the U.S. And... 
Texas leads the nation in wind generation, for example. Mm-hmm. That and and that that gives me hope. And you know what? Nobody in Texas knows these things. No, <laughs> nobody in Texas knows that we have the biggest um, army base by land area in the U.S. Fort Hood that is forty three percent powered by clean energy, and it's saving taxpayers millions of dollars because that's huh. cheaper. Hmm. Nobody knows that the Dallas-Fort Worth airport was the first large carbon-neutral airport in North America. No, I did not know that. No, no, nobody knows that um, the city of Houston, which is home to, of course, you know, most of the headquarters of, of many large multinational oil and gas corporations, that the city of Houston has is going to be meeting its Paris targets wow. um, in terms of reducing its carbon emissions. I mean, there, there's so much good news when you go out and look for it. And, and that inspires us to act, too, because... The image I use, and you've probably heard me say this before, but I just think it's so powerful. This is literally what I picture in my head, is that we think of climate action as a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of an incredibly steep hill, and it's only got a few hands on it. It's got, you know, Al Gore's hands are on it, and maybe Jane Goodall, and maybe a couple other hands, but nobody else. And so there's just no way we're going to make it up that hill. Like, just forget it. Like, why even waste my time? That's sort of mentally how we think. But the reality is when we start to look around and see that 90% of new energy installed last year during COVID was clean energy. Mm. And we start to see that, um, you know, cities all over the world are taking action on climate change and big businesses like Microsoft and Apple and, you know, AT&T, you know, they're building one of the, they're building the biggest solar farm in the U.S. outside of Dallas to supply major corporations with clean energy. So, Really, that giant boulder, it is already at the top of the hill, and it's already rolling down the hill in the right direction, and it already has millions of hands on it. It just doesn't have enough to get it going faster. And when we think, well, maybe I could add my hand to that because I could get it going just a little bit faster, that's totally different than if we think it's at the bottom of the hill, not budging even an inch. So I find tremendous hope from that. But... Ultimately, I can't stop there um, because for me, and, and this isn't just a theological perspective, we see this from psychology and from neuroscience and from theories of change too. Hope does not begin in a place of positive circumstances and hope is not at the guarantee of a positive outcome. Right, right. One of the times in history when people were most hopeful was during the London Blitz, And they were hoping against hope. I mean, talk about like you couldn't even go to sleep at night. You might wake up and your entire family and the whole block that they lived on could be gone. I mean, and and you're talking about you're talking about what I I like refer to as a muscular hope. This isn't about optimism. Mm. It's not about wishful thinking. It's about it's about insisting that we can be agents of change, that what is doesn't have to be right. Oh, and it's about throwing your body and your life behind that. That is such a perfect way to say it. I might steal those. (laughs) Okay. You're welcome to it. Yes. 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 That's exactly what that hope is. And so recognizing that that hope begins with fear or despair or anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. It begins, as the Bible says in the book of Romans, it begins with suffering. Yeah. And that suffering produces perseverance and that perseverance produces character and the character produces hope. And ultimately, ultimately... 
as as Christians, our hope is not placed in people in this world who will always fail us, um, politicians who can never live up to all of their promises. Um, it's not based on a certain piece of technology because there's no miracle technology that will fix the whole problem for us. But our hope is ultimately placed in God, not that God will swoop in and fix it for us. The Bible is very clear that, you know, you reap what you sow and we've been given things to take care of on God's behalf. Yeah. Yeah. But, but God has given us these tremendous gifts. And so for me, my favorite verse in the Bible that motivates me in my work today, um, it has nothing to do with creation or nature or anything like that. It is the verse in Timothy where it talks about fear, where it says, God has not given you a spirit of fear. So when that fear comes against me, when that fear comes against us, I have a litmus test. That fear is not coming from God. And if it's not coming from God, why do I want to entertain it? Why do I want to succumb to it? Why do I want to give into it? Instead, what God has given us, that verse goes on to say, is a spirit of power, which is kind of an old-fashioned word, but in, in, you know, in, in yeah. modern parlance, it means you know, to be empowered, to be able to act. Yeah, or agency. Yes, agency, yeah. exactly. Yeah. A spirit yeah. of agency, I like that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the opposite of being paralyzed by fear. Not And we also have a spirit of love, which means we can be thinking of and considering others, not just ourselves, on our, our own needs. And as a scientist, my favorite part, a sound mind to make good decisions <laughs> based on the information God has given us, some of which comes from science. Right. Um. You know, I, I, uh, I, what was that organization you mentioned a little while ago? It was about young evangelicals for climate action. Um, climate action. You know, um, I just feel like you've, you know, we kind of, kind of circled back to this dynamic. Um, uh, and again, this kind of the undertold story. Um, you know, recently I was speaking with a, an evangelical elder, very esteemed and, and brilliant person. And he was talking to me about how um, on this, I don't want to call it an issue. I don't like calling anything important mm. an issue because that flattens it out. But on this mm. subject, on this mm. aspect of our of our lives and our life together, which is a relationship to the natural world, the ecological uh, uh, reckoning, mm-hmm. um, that there was, a, he said, there was a total generational divide. That you know, you could look at other things, or you could look at you. You could you, there were some things you could generalize about white evangelicals where there might not be such a, a a gap but if you're talking about climate change and wanting to be a force in um and a generative force um that that young evangelicals are in a radically different place than mm-hmm. um than generations before them is that an experience that you have yes there is a strong um age gradient in terms of levels of concern about climate change and i have met so many incredible young people who take their who take the Bible very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and they know that in the Bible, <laughs> and for it says, you, the Bible is that text, right? The, it really is. To talk about climate change. <laughs> it is. Um, uh-huh. And it's so funny because, so with my YouTube series, Global Weirding, the, the, one of the most popular episodes for many years, it was the most popular episode was, what does the Bible say about climate change? Mm-hmm. And of course, speaking literally, it says nothing. But it has so much in there about our attitudes and our actions towards our sisters and our brothers, towards, um, you know, this incredible planet that God has gifted to us, to the point where sometimes, um, especially when I'm asked to give a chapel service at a Christian college, sometimes I give a talk called God's Second Greatest Gift. Because as Christians, we, you know, you're taught in Sunday school that God's greatest gift was his son who came to give us spiritual life. 
But we never stop to ask, what might the second greatest gift be? And I wouldn't argue with somebody who wanted to say, well, maybe it's the third or fourth, you know. <laughs> but I propose that God's second greatest gift was this planet that supplies our physical life, because mm. the Bible actually talks quite a bit about how important the physical is. And there was even a heresy back in the days of the early church, the Gnostic heresy, that said that the physical doesn't matter, that it's only the yeah. spiritual, that the flesh yeah. isn't real and things we do don't matter. And the, the um, letters of John were written specifically to put back against that Gnostic heresy, the idea that no, Jesus came in the flesh. He was literally a flesh and blood person. That's how important the physical is to God. And then, of course, earlier in the Bible, there's so many verses about how God cares for the seemingly most insignificant aspects of nature and creation. So I, I believe that for many of us, particularly in the U.S., and this also happens in other countries, but it's, it's predominant in the U.S., Many Christians are like the book of James talks about. It says, you are like the man who looked at himself in the mirror and then went away and forgot what he looks like. Mm. That's quite an image. Mm. You know, I also just want to kind of, you know, drive this home again for you one of the things you you really what a very simple message you have, but obviously it's not that simple. Is that we have to talk about this? Um, was that um, there? That was there was something about that in one of those polls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that like two thirds of people across all across all the divisions said they never talked about this, um, and. And for and so so just a little bit as we as we kind of draw to a close about um, what that means. So because again, I think you're not talking about speaking about the science, which which might be part of the conversation. But you're you're speaking about, and this is what you, you kind of just an illustration of what you just said is like connecting the dots, not just between uh, this thing that is happening in our world and in and on our planet. But that and these very um, elemental aspects of life and of of human um, well-being, um, and also, um, yeah, connect that connecting that that dot of the us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as you and even just that image you just gave of connecting the dots between how we're living and who we be- believe ourselves to be and and want to be. Mm-hmm. So often we see caring about climate change and acting on climate to be either unrelated to who we are or mm-hmm. even often, sadly, as Christians living in the U.S., antithetical to who we are. Yeah. But the reality is, is that whoever we are, whatever is at the top of our priority list, whether it is the safety and welfare of our family, whether it is a faith that we adhere to, whether it is the job that we do or something, an activity that we're passionate about, Whatever we care about, climate change is already, not in the future. Now, it is already affecting everything that's already at the top of our list. So caring about this issue and acting on it is not only consistent with who we are, but it enables us to more genuinely express what we truly care about, our family, our faith, the place mm-hmm. where we live, the work that we do, the, you know, the activity that we enjoy, that we're passionate about. We're an even more genuine expression of that when we acknowledge how climate change threatens it or them, and we are, we're doing something about it. And so 
it's not about changing who we are. It's not about telling people that they're not, they don't have the right values, or they're not the right person, or they don't, you know, they don't care for the right reasons. It's about acknowledging that to care about climate change, you only have to be one thing. And that one thing is a human living on planet Earth. And we are all that. And if someone does not think that they care about this issue and does not support climate action, it is simply because they have not connected the dots between what they care about and how climate change is affecting it. And they don't know what real climate solutions look like. Because when they find out what those look like, there is overwhelming support across the US, even in some of the reddest parts of the country, when people say, oh, you want to do that? Well, that so those great. are So that, that's <laughs> when you say talk about it like that, talk about that. That's what you're saying. Yes. Don't talk about the science in Antarctica and global temperatures. Talk about she how says, it's affected. She says, yes. one of the leading atmospheric scientists. <laughs> right, <yes>. right. <laughs> I'm a scientist. I'm saying don't talk about the science. Uh-huh. I'm saying, you know, if you really love science, sure, talk about mm-hmm. it. But talk mm-hmm. about why it matters to you. Talk about how you both, you know, ski or you're both parents and you're worried about your kids in the playground being too hot for them or the fact that you fish and you've noticed that the fish populations are changing or the fact that, you know, your basement got flooded last time it rained. Talk about something that matters to you and to the person that you're talking with. And then do you research and don't be scared when I say research. I just mean like find stuff online, read, Mm. read the book, do, you know, Mm. just go to follow some great accounts on social media to learn about what real climate solutions look like and share that information with people. Like, do you know what our city is doing? Find out what your city's doing. Tell right, people. Right. Do you know what your state's doing? Do you know what your church is doing? And if you don't know, ask. And then if not doing anything, say, hey, here are some mm-hmm. things that you could be doing. And I, hmm. I even have a list on my website because people often ask me that. Okay. So I've got a list of, you know, what could your church do? What could you do at school? <laughs> All of these different things you can do. And that, that honestly, and here's the crazy thing. When you look at how the world has changed before, And it has changed. I mean, you know, 200 years ago, it was somehow completely socially acceptable to have other human beings in slavery. Yeah. And, you know, 150 years ago, it was entirely acceptable to say that women's brains were too small and too fragile to be educated because they would overheat. Yeah. And so not even just acceptable, but respectable. Respectable. Yes. Doctors were saying that. Yeah. And, And of course, we couldn't vote. And then, you know, like... Yeah. But in the middle of the century, it was somehow acceptable to say that depending on the color of your skin, you could or couldn't enter certain buildings or sit in a place on the bus. So the world has absolutely changed before. And how did it change? It was when ordinary people of no particular wealth or fame decided that the world could and should be different. And they decided to not only take personal action, but to use their voices to talk about why it mattered, what could be done, and to advocate for change in every sphere in which they were. That's how the world changed before, and that's how it has to change again. Well, that might be your last word, (laughs) but I would like to ask you, um, uh, you have a son, correct? Mm -hmm. You have a... So I just imagine, I'm just wondering if you can imagine if 20 years from now, your son were asked the question I asked you at the beginning of this, what was the relationship of science and religion that was transmitted to you, that, that entered your body um, in, in 
your childhood, the world of your childhood? How do you think he might answer or how would you like him to answer? Oh, that is a great question. I feel like I'm going to go ask him that now. <laughs> See what he says. <laughs> um, so, so I love the idea that I grew up with. And so I would just be so happy if he answered the same way that I did, because I think that if we truly believe that God created this incredible universe we live in, then what is science other than studying God's creation? How could it ever possibly be in conflict with what we believe? And mm-hmm. I, I don't just hope that my son says that. I mean, imagine, imagine if all Christians said that. What a different mm-hmm. world we'd be living in. And what a different way we'd be able to work together, focusing on what unites us rather than what divides us. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't preach or belabor the issue of climate change to my son. Um, he certainly knows about it, but he also knows that his mom is doing everything she can to help fix the problem. <laughs> and um, he, he knows that um, there's a lot of good stuff going on. And he's actually hounding me to get, um, I have a, a hybrid now that I can run on the battery most of the time, but I have to switch to gas when I go on long distances. Right. So he's like, why don't you have an all electric? You should have an all electric. When are we getting an all electric car, mom? <laughs> yeah. So, so um, and then I heard him, somebody asked him the other day, they're like, well, what do you eat? And he's like, well, we don't eat a lot of meat, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. I like it. <laughs> yeah. and, and then when, um, and, and honestly, this just, as a mother, this just completely almost broke my heart in a good way. Um, <laughs> a, a few years ago, um, when it was close to Martin Luther King Jr. Day and um, the kids in his grade three class, they had to all write an essay. I had a dream. So I had uh, forgotten his lunch, as frequently happens, and <laughs> I had to run his lunch into into his locker in between some of my meetings. So I was running down the hall, kind of scanning the lockers to see which one is his and sort of seeing all these cute little I have a dream essays. And most of them, you know, were pretty similar to what um, MLK said. Right. And then I'm walking along and I see this essay that says, I have a dream that we will solve climate change. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I think that must be his office or his, his office, his locker. And it was so cute. It was like, yes, it's a problem, but we can fix it. And lots of people are doing good things to help fix it. And we just need everybody to be part of it. And that's how it happens. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> that that as a mother, as a parent was just I mean, I'm almost getting tears in my eyes talking about it right now. I tell you, you've done your job. Yes. Yep. And so he's not scared. He's not worried, but he's aware and he's activated. And that's really, I think, the best that we can do for all of us. I don't want people to be afraid. And honestly, I'm not asking people to change their lifestyle. I'm asking people to help change the world. Okay. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. This has been such a delight. And it will be, it's just, I mean, I know, I, I, I know that as much as you as you say, you you probably you take a lot of grief from both sides. You, I'm sure you get a lot of gratitude, but I just know there's going to be a huge amount of gratitude coming at you and us for this. Oh, so thank, thank you. you. It's been yeah. such a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, and um, are you, did the book, are you on... I don't know. Do people do book tours these days? Um, well, is... with COVID, I'm doing pretty much virtual book tours. You're doing it? Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, good luck with that, and we'll we'll do our part to get the word out. Thank you. I so okay. appreciate that. Blessings. Thank you, and to you too. <laughs>